very few people in this world have an accurate picture of themselves. Most of us have a curated picture you know, that we have carefully drawn from our better moments. We view ourselves in an idealized way. And that's why when we respond with hanger, we are more than happy to use that Snickers slogan. Right? You're not you when you're hungry. If you remember that, that ad campaign, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, first one of that Snickers ad campaign was this, this scene opens where there's this group of guys that are playing a pickup football game. And there are all these guys running around. And then suddenly you see this person conspicuously there who has no business being there. Betty White is running a route. And, and you see the ball get thrown her way. And then all of a sudden this guy just plasters her. I mean, it's into the mud. Big old dude. And uh, miraculously she gets up. And she walks into the huddle. And, and the quarterback just kind of yells at her saying, what's wrong with you? You're playing like Betty White. And she kind of snaps at him. And, and then while this little interchange is going on, somebody goes up and kind of pulls Betty White aside and hands her a Snickers bar. And as she hands the Snickers bar, the person says, better. And this person, who when the camera pans back, is no longer Betty White. Now it's just one of the guys. And he says, better. And then it closes, you know, with the slogan, you're not you when you're hungry. And I thought, again, that's brilliant. But it's dead wrong. I mean... Life is full of things that keep us from expressing who we truly are. But it's not hunger. And it's not tiredness. That's another excuse that we'll give our kids, right? When they start having this exaggerated emotional response when it's past their bedtime, we say, well, that, that's not really them. That, they're, they're tired. Or when people are sick and they bite your head off, that's something else we might say in that moment. Oh, that they're, not, they're not being themselves. But, you know, hunger or tiredness or sickness or pain, that's not what actually inhibits us from being our true self. That's just what we tell ourselves. It's because we're reconstructing our lives so that it's something that we would like. Something that, a version of ourselves that we would like. So we all have these Jekyll and Hyde moments, right? But very few of us ever ask, which one is truly us? Is the respectable Dr. Jekyll, really us? Or is this evil Mr. Hyde really us? Now, there's a, probably a complexity to how we might answer that. But we need to understand that Mr. Hyde truly is us when he comes out. Now, he might not exhaust our reality, but he is a true expression of ourselves when he comes out. He just remains hidden through being well-fed, well-rested, relatively without pain. That's how we keep him in check. In Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman, the central figure, Willie Loman, he's done what we all do, maybe not quite to his extent, but he's presented his life in a way that's not real. Now, his wife and at least one of his sons knows that, and his wife is committed to the charade because she knows Willie can't handle facing the truth about himself. He's demonstrated that previously in the play. Or previously in his life, I should say. So she's, she's going to commit to that revision of his life. But 
you can tell from the title that is not a red herring, he, he isn't able to handle it in the end. He can't face the truth about himself. Now, truth of the matter is, none of us can simply face the truth about ourselves. When you are confronted with the truth about your natural self, the truth about who we are in our sinfulness, there should be a response of grief, regret over the, the things that we've done over our lives. When you get a good look at yourself, as you really are, it's right to have some regret. But it shouldn't end there. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 describes two ways that you can go from this, this state of grief. And there's two kinds of grief it describes there. There's godly grief and worldly grief. Both lead to a form of death. Paul says there, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, I just said both lead to a form of death. You could see that in the verse itself, it's very clear, the only death you read about directly is that end physical death that, that ends the verse. But repentance involves dying to yourself. And salvation involves having died with Christ. So that's how we survive a confrontation with ourselves as we truly are. By dying to ourselves and recognizing that in Christ we died with him. So in our passage this morning, we have a tale of two disciples, each are confronted with the truth of themselves. The truth about themselves. And they both respond with regret and grief. Both of them respond that way. But there's kind of a fork in the road at this point. One of them demonstrates a worldly grief that leads to death. The other, a grief that leads to repentance and salvation. Seems like Matthew has placed these two here He's the only one who mentions this story about Judas, but he's placed them side by side so that we can compare the two, so that we can get a glimpse of how they've responded and so that we have a, a teaching, some warning through these two, these two experiences, the denial of Peter and the tragedy of Judas. So he wants us to respond. When we come to see ourselves, we need to see in this state of regret which direction we need to go. So let's... Take a look at this passage starting in Matthew 26. You can turn there. If you aren't already there, I'm going to try to fix this here. It's... Or not. Matthew 26 and verse 69 is where we're going to begin. We're going to see two responses to seeing the real you. And both, again, involve regret. When you see the real you, you can either respond with a regret that leads to repentance or regret that leads to death. So first we're going to look at this regret that leads to repentance. When you get to verse 69, the wording there suggests that what we see in these verses it's going on the same time 
as what happens with Jesus. So Jesus' interrogation is going on while Peter's experiencing this interrogation here. Only Jesus responds with courageously giving his good confession. The camera now pans to Peter. What's going on at the same time in the courtyard? And you have these high priest servants that are warming themselves by a fire. They're out in the cold. And the camera focuses in on Peter the Rock Johnson. At least that's how I think you could, you could label him. If, if you read John 1, 42, he's called the son of John. And remember how he got his name, Peter. It's the Rock when he has good confession. And, and I think he demonstrates the same kind of confidence as Dwayne the Rock Johnson in this moment. I mean, remember when Jesus said earlier in this chapter, all are going to fall away from me this night. Peter said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then when Jesus came back with, not not only are you going to fall away, but you're going to deny me. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So this is Peter the Rock Johnson, at least in his his mind. Now, he, he might have been a little shaken at this point because, you know, he, he had just cut off somebody's ear as he was trying to cut off their head. And then he turned tail and ran when Jesus was arrested. So, I mean, he's probably not in a real stable point. But he had, after all, come back. He had followed this group of soldiers. And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, mustered up the courage to see this through, to see what was going to happen to his Messiah, his Lord. Up comes a little servant girl. John tells us it's the same little servant girl that let him in after John had encouraged her to do that. And so this little servant girl makes a connection between John, who was also there, and Peter. And she says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. It also means she's connecting him with another disciple. It could have been Judas, because Judas may have gone there. But I think because John had tells us that he was, one, he was also there. It's probably talking about him. Now, calling Jesus the Galilean, it's not inaccurate. I mean, he, he had grown up in Nazareth, and he had made his, his uh, headquarters for ministry in Capernaum. And they're both in that district, district called Galilee. But she's, that's not a neutral designation. I mean, in the very least, she's saying Jesus is an outsider. But she also probably viewed a Galilean as a place where, you know, less refined people were from. So she's not really calling Jesus a hillbilly or redneck necessarily, but this is not a compliment either. So what we need to realize, a number of Bible teachers point this out, that this is not the most intimidating person that comes up to Peter. I mean, it's just one little servant girl. And technically, this is not a hostile encounter. She's not really making an accusation. She's really just making an observation. So, granted, she probably doesn't view Jesus very highly. But Peter's response is is a reaction here. Verse 70 says, Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. It's probably a knee-jerk reaction because he was afraid. But it's also based on his sinful but very natural desire for self-preservation. So he's basically saying, I don't know what you're talking about. It's an evasive way to get around things, but we know it's a lie. 
And then Peter gets even more evasive. Goes out to the entrance. He's trying to maybe slip out. He's probably having second thoughts, thinking, I, I, maybe I should leave. But he sticks around. And after a little while, verse 71 says, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So this time she's not even directing it at Peter. She's, she's talking to the people around saying, hey, this guy, this guy's with, with Jesus. Now, again, she kind of has somewhat of a possibly disdainful response about Jesus. This is distancing language. Jesus is an out-of-towner. Of Nazareth, not a part of the Jerusalem elite. And then she says, This guy, this stranger here, he's an out of towner too. He, he's part of Jesus' little gang. Verse 72 says, And again he denied it, but now it adds, He did so with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. He's starting to take measures to distance himself from Jesus even more. He uses an oath. He's using language that suggests Jesus is a stranger to him. He's not some person he knows. He's just the man. He's just some guy. Now, Jesus had told his followers back in the Sermon on the Mount not to use oaths. He said specifically, let your yes be yes. You don't need to use an oath. And not only that, but more recently in chapter 23, Jesus had explained the ways that the scribes and the Pharisees would use little different words to get out of the oaths that they did make. So here you have Peter. He's not only rejected his own master's teaching and using an oath, but really he's kind of being like the scribes and Pharisees, and he's trying to wiggle around here. He uses words to make people think that he's trustworthy when he's not. If you can't beat him, join him. Verse 74 <clears throat> says then he, or sorry, a little bit of time passes and uh, there's <clears throat> not a servant girl this time. Now the bystanders are charting, starting to catch on to things and, and they come around to Peter and say, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. If you've ever heard somebody say that they pocked the cod, bahaba. It's probably terrible to a Northeasterner, I'm sorry. But you probably know they're from the Northeast. They're from New England. Or if they say yins, we know that they're from Pittsburgh, somewhere in Pittsburgh. Or, I say that because my sister's here, her family's here, and my dad's from Pittsburgh. He says yun. Or if somebody says the bears, you know, you know they're from Chicago. So, I mean, you, you grow up with an accent based on where you're from. I have an accent now. I have to acknowledge that. I don't know what it is. I can't hear it. But everybody has an accent, and Peter's got a Galilean accent. It gives him away. So now in verse 74, he says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, the text actually only says that he invoked a curse. It doesn't actually say on himself. That's an interpretation. He could have invoked a curse not on himself but on Jesus in order to make it absolutely clear to everyone that he... He doesn't know this guy. He doesn't want anything to do with this guy. Either way, it's better to translate it, invoke a curse, rather than just curse, because the idea of cursing and swearing has a different connotation to us in, in English. Peter isn't using profanity here. He's not using four-letter words. The idea is he's saying something like, may God curse me. 
if I'm lying. It's a very serious thing to a people who didn't question the existence of God. Our culture is much different. In fact, our profanity itself is belittling to God because it makes light of God's condemnation. We make light of damnation and hell with our profanities. Peter's actually saying something very, very serious. Something much closer to something like, God can send me to hell if I'm lying. Or worse, God could send this guy. You're talking about to hell for all I care. I swear by heaven that I don't know this stranger. And then it happens. Right then, the last words of verse 74. Immediately, the rooster crowed. In that moment, Peter was staring at himself in the face. Seeing himself clearly for the first time, really. His confidence is shattered. Because he remembered what Jesus said earlier that night. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He said, even if I said, die, I will not deny you. That was back when he believed this illusion about himself. This idea that he's Peter the Rock Johnson. He is is self-confident. He is self-assured. And now he sees clearly. Jesus was right about it. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, Peter was deeply distraught at that point. He clearly regretted what he did. He knew it was wrong. He wished it had never happened. And it could have gotten much worse for Peter. The story could have ended much worse for him. But we know it didn't. And Peter is a leader in the church after this, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He is still a leader in the church. He was restored by Jesus himself. Though he was faithless in this moment, Jesus remained faithful to him. So this was regret that led to repentance. Now, before we think about why that's the case, I want to go ahead and look at the other form of Regret that we see in Matthew, this regret that leads to death. And so we turn to chapter 27, and it begins with this kind of interlude that reminds us about what's going on all this while. All the while that Peter has been being interrogated, Jesus has been interrogated. And now it's morning light, and it says all the chief priests and the elders of the people, so all the members of the Sanhedrin, the Leaders of Israel took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That probably means they came to a formal, official decision. They already committed to this. But they were now formalizing it. And probably also means that they're not only just simply deciding to put him to death, but how they're going to go about it. Remember, their charge against Jesus is blasphemy. Pilate's not going to care about that. So we're going to come up with the charges that they actually bring in order to get Jesus executed. But that's what they do here. Remember, the Romans were the ones who could actually put someone to death. They did not allow the people that they had subjugated to do that. They allowed them to do a lot of different things in self-governance, but that was not one of them. And So they had to present this to Pilate. It says in verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. 
A pilot was more technically a prefect. A prefect is something a little different than even a procurator or a governor. I mean, they're the same, but it's, it's more specific. It's a military officer who's specifically appointed to a place that's going to cause trouble, potentially has caused trouble, or is prone to cause trouble. And that is certainly Israel. They were not happy with Roman occupation. So that was difficult for the people, but it's actually convenient for these Jewish leaders at this point. Because it's a lot easier for them to convince this prefect that there's somebody who could cause trouble in a place where that's exactly why he was there. So even though Jesus is given no evidence of being a flight risk, they bind him. It's probably for effect as they present him to Jesus, or to Pilate as somebody worthy of the death penalty. And this is what stimulates Judas's regret. That's why Matthew places this here. So that's the response we're going to turn to and look at. And it's not just Judas's response. It can be a response that any of us have. In response to seeing the real you, there can be this regret that leads to death. That's what we see in verses 3 through 10. So verse 3 begins, Then when Judas, his his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Now, that last word translated, changed his mind, it seems to convey more than just that. It seems to connote also regret. That he felt guilty. That he wished he wouldn't have done what he had done. So what he does, he wants to get rid of the money that they paid him. He wants to get rid of it. Because he associates it now with what he's done. He says, as much in verse 4 when he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's saying, I've done a terrible thing. I've done the wrong thing. And he wants to get this money as far away from himself as he can. He's like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare play, Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. And he and his wife, they end up murdering the king. And during that murder, Lady Macbeth gets blood on her. So by Act 5, Shakespeare describes her neurotically trying to wash her hands. She still sees this blood. James Boyce describes the scene. He says, in her imagination, she saw the incriminating blood whenever she looked at her hands. She washed and washed, but washing didn't get the stains out. What? Will these hands never be clean, she asked. The answer is they will not. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand, she confesses weakly. That's what the money is to Judas. He wants to get rid of it. He feels guilty with it. He wants to cleanse himself in that way. And so, it says he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. But they don't care. And he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what, what is it to us? See to it yourself. They're saying, it's not our problem. You do what you've got to do. Now, I don't think they're agreeing with him that Jesus really is innocent. You can kind of read it that way. But they understand that this is what Judas believes is the case now. And they're not convinced of that. They don't care that he's come to feel this guilt. You can imagine a police, a police officer who's dealing with an informant, or maybe the mob, or maybe a gang, and this informant feels guilty for turning on their own people. Police officer isn't going to change their thoughts about the guilt of the person they're trying to arrest because this person gets cold feet or feels guilty about betraying that person. 
these priests, these chief priests, they don't feel like, oh, they've done the wrong thing. They don't care what Jesus is saying at this point. His change of art, is it, it's not doing anything to change their plans. So since they're not interested in even taking his money back, they don't, they don't accept his money, Judas throws it into the temple. That was where the chief priests were. They were the ones that paid him the money in the first place. Now, it's not clear exactly what has happened if, if Judas has actually gone into the temple where he's not supposed to be. But some people suggest, well, this is just talking about the temple area. And so he just throws it into the temple area. But at this point, Judas doesn't care about rules. I don't think there's any reason not to think that Judas marched right up to the temple and chucked this right through the curtain into the holy place. And then we read these dreadful words at the end of verse 5. It says, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He did what no one should ever do. No matter how grief-stricken you are, he took his own life. God has not left us with that as an option for a response. Now, as numerous people point out, the circumstances involved with suicide, that, that's very complicated. There are a lot of things going on. It's not simply a matter of somebody choosing the wrong thing at a bad moment. There's confusion involved, and very often you have, even have people with physiological things going on, imbalances and such. And so it is very complicated. There are also quick to point out that this is not the unforgivable sin. Some people treat it that way. Classically, there are different groups that say it is. It's not. Fact is, is that genuine believers can make this horrific and sinful error in judgment. Unfortunately, there's nothing in this passage that suggests that Judas was a genuine believer. Now, it's more common in modern times to try to give Judas the benefit of the doubt. Some even try to present him as a hero, in a way. But Matthew hasn't left that for us. Because this is a man Jesus said, it would be better if he had never been born. That's not the language describing a believer who's just made a horrible choice. That's, that's the language of condemnation from the judge himself. Even though Judas comes to this, this wretched end, his response and the response of the Jewish leaders, they demonstrate something very important for us. Verse 6 begins to tell their response. The fact that the chief priests are here concerned about what is lawful, again, points out that they don't think they've broken the law. So we probably shouldn't think when they mention blood money that they are now associating what they've done with murder. And that they paid Judas in some unscrupulous, wrong way. The fact that Judas has now had to throw this money into the temple to get rid of it suggests that they weren't going to take it. They weren't going to accept it. They still viewed this as his money. It's what they paid him. They don't view it as something that, wrong that they had done. So because this was his money and what Judas had now gone and done, Judas now was a murderer committed that act against himself. So this was now unclean money as far as they were concerned. So they couldn't use it for clean, holy purposes. And so, once again, these leaders take counsel. 
They come to a, dis- a decision. And as a few others have put it, they, they decide to use this unclean money to purchase an unclean place for unclean people. Money's unclean, as I said, but the unclean place is a cemetery. It's a burial place. It's where dead bodies are, unclean bodies. Then, then the unclean people are strangers. Likely he's referring to non-Jewish people who might die in Jerusalem and need a place to be buried. Could be that they're just talking about somebody who was not a resident of Jerusalem, but likely he's talking about a Gentile. Now, what's interesting is the way Matthew describes this, the detail he uses. He mentions the potter's field as the place where this, this cemetery would be. It's singular, it's the field of the potter. So it could be a specific potter, or it could be, as many of them suggest, this is where potters would go to get their clay. Now that it's depleted, they sell it. But understand, Matthew and the gospel writers don't just include random details. This is something that has significance. Even if the people who were carrying it out didn't realize that significance. And thankfully, Matthew tells us the significance. And for the one, for people in his day, it held significance because it explained the name of this field in Jerusalem. This field was formerly known as the potter's field. Now it's the field of blood. It was associated now with this person who had taken their own life. And it actually becomes part of the evidence that Matthew is telling the truth. Because they had this this field that had been renamed after this situation where the person who had betrayed Jesus, that person themselves, they had said, I'm wrong. He's innocent. That, That field now, for them, was evidence that Jesus was actually the Messiah. But then there's even more significance to these events. In verses 9 through 10, Matthew gives this final mention of the fulfillment of Scripture. There's other ways that Scripture is fulfilled after this, but he specifically mentions the fulfillment of Scripture here for the last time. And he, It's not something that Jesus has done, it's what his enemies have done here. And they've freely chosen to do this. This is their course of action. But unknowingly, they have carried out a pattern from the Old Testament to its ultimate end. It's a pattern that is seen here in the prophets Jeremiah and Zechariah. It's a pattern of God's people rejecting their divine, divinely established leadership, demonstrating that they warrant the curse for disobedience. So Matthew says that it's the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. But when you read the wording and you compare it with the Old Testament, what you find is it matches more closely, actually. Quite closely, it matches Zechariah 11 and verses 12 through 13, not Jeremiah. So what's going on? Well, this is a a practice that's, it actually stretches back into the Old Testament. William Hendrickson, he pointed out that in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 21, there is a quote in the Old Testament of an earlier portion of the Old Testament. It's a quote from both Leviticus and Jeremiah, but The only citation is Jeremiah. So that's one instance of it. In in Mark's gospel, at the very beginning, Mark does the same thing. He quotes from Isaiah and Malachi, but he only attributes it to Isaiah. So this is a common practice. One of linking 
different passages together. What Mark and Matthew are doing, and even what, what the writer of 1 Chronicles is doing, these inspired writers, they're showing us that these passages are connected. They're related. They're, they're, they're showing us something together. And the reasons why they might attribute it to one or the other probably vary. In this case, if you were to look at this and there was no attribution, you'd automatically just assume, well, he's referring to Zechariah because the, the connections to Jeremiah are more subtle. So it seems like Matthew's making sure we don't miss that this is connected to Jeremiah. So in the passage in Zechariah, you have Zechariah carry out a living parable. He's illustrating what God has experienced. And so what he does is he takes up a job of being a shepherd of the temple flock. And in his experience, the flock doesn't like him. <laughs> Don't like the shepherd. So he quits. And, and when he quits, he goes to the, elder, the priests and the Levites to, to get paid. And they offer him this paltry sum. 30 pieces of silver. It demonstrates what they think of him. And so the Lord tells him, you need to throw that in the sanctuary to the potter, oddly enough. I haven't figured out what the potter's doing there, but there's a potter there. And it connects with other portions, other, other prophets like Jeremiah. So you get that in part by the fact that Matthew doesn't quote this exactly as it is in Zechariah. He mentions the field of the potter. Zechariah doesn't do that. And so he's giving us a nudge that we need to look in Jeremiah for other parts of this. And in Jeremiah 19 especially, there's a connection with the story here in Matthew. You have in Jeremiah chapter 19, elders and priests. You have the mention of innocent blood. You have this, this area associated with the potter renamed and renamed in such a way that it draws out the violence done to it. Now, in both of these cases, in, in Jeremiah's context and in Zechariah's context, it's demonstrating that God's people deserve punishment. Throughout the Old Testament, they reject God's leadership by rejecting his prophets. And what you find here, through what Judas does and what these chief priests do, not only have they rejected God's leadership through his prophets, they brought it to its ultimate degree. They have rejected God's own son. They brought that pattern to its ultimate conclusion. And the major takeaway for us, as we read this, is again that Judas and these chief priests, though they have acted freely and sinfully, have merely done exactly what Scripture said was going to happen. So, this betrayal of Judas, even what goes on to happen between his encounter with the chief, it's not happenstance. It doesn't take away from Judas' responsibility or the chief priest's responsibility. They're sinful. They're freely doing what they're doing. But they're, they're doing nothing outside of accomplishing God's purpose, which is salvation through his son. So if you see nothing else from this passage, then please see this. What happened to Jesus wasn't just the unfortunate result of politics. It wasn't just the the result of selfish ambition. 
I mean, certainly there are all these factors involved. But the reason Judas handed Jesus over to the chief priest, the reason the chief priest handed Jesus over to Pilate, the reason Pilate is going to hand Jesus over to be crucified, all using the same word, is ultimately because God the Father was handing his son over to death for the salvation of everyone who trusts in him. Douglas O'Donnell points that out. He pointed out this repetition of words. It's used repeatedly for what's happening to Jesus. It's translated different ways like hand over or betray or delivered up, but it's all the same word. And it, it almost pictures Jesus being handed off from one person to the other. But ultimately, Paul explains what's really going on. There, those are all true things, but ultimately what's happening is what Paul says in Romans eight thirty two that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up, handed him over for us all. In chapter 4, verse 25, he says Jesus was delivered up, handed over for our trespasses. So what these sinful people are accomplishing is the salvation that God intended for everyone who will repent and trust in his son. Everyone who will believe that Jesus really is the king, in spite of the fact that he was crucified, that he is the king who died to rescue sinners, who died to provide forgiveness of sin, to reconcile us to God. That's what was happening. That's the real meaning of what was happening with Jesus. And so if you're going to respond any way to this passage, believe that. Believe that Jesus died to forgive you and bring you to God. I hope that is happening, that will happen for everyone in here. And if you have any questions about that, you should talk to me afterwards. For those who are responding that way, those who would consider themselves Jesus' disciples, followers of Jesus, you know, we have in this story tale of two such disciples. Both of them profess faith in Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, Peter's the one that expressed that first in chapter 16, but when he does, Jesus then talks to the other disciples as though they had agreed, as though they believed this too. Judas had professed to believe in Jesus here. So in light of what these two disciples have done, how they have responded, how should we respond? I think Paul gives us a good summary in his second letter to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here's the question for us. Have we died with Christ? That's what we profess to believe. That's what we illustrate when we're baptized, going under the water, an illustration that we died with Christ. We believe that, and if that is the case, that faith is genuine, and not only do we die with him, but we will live with him. We will be raised. We will receive that 
resurrection life that we're already experiencing, if we endure in faith and give evidence that this is a Holy Spirit work of God, then we will reign with Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But then note the change in the middle of verse 12. There in, in first or Second Timothy, he says, if we deny Jesus, he will deny us. Jesus said that in Matthew. In Matthew 10, 33, he said, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's the same exact language used for Peter. What Peter has just done. To deny Jesus means to repudiate your, your loyalty, to repudiate Jesus, to reject your loyalty to him. Peter did that in his words. He did it before everyone, it says. And Judas did too. It doesn't use the exact language, but what Judas is doing, it's much more well thought out, actually. He goes to the chief priests, offers his services to them. He's repudiating his loyalty to Jesus. He is denying him. And then he carries it out. He seals it in Gethsemane. But what we understand, again, is that Jesus doesn't repudiate his loyalty to Peter. So what's the difference? What Peter does proves to be temporary. And what he does is what Paul really describes here as being faithless. Paul says that when we are faithless, Jesus remains faithful to us. But why? Paul says because he cannot deny himself. It has nothing to do with Peter. That's not what proves decisive between Peter and Judas. What's different is that he belongs to Jesus. Judas does not. Now, it's not to take away from Judas' responsibility. Judas does what he wants to do. He's responsible for what he does. But what we need to understand about Peter is that he's not inherently better than Judas. So if you're nervous about whether you're going to be like Peter or Judas, you should never look at anything in yourself to answer that question. Yes, we must endure if we are going to enjoy the reign of Christ. But we don't do that in our own strength. We don't endure in our strength. We endure in His So our only hope in life or death is not anything in us. It's that we belong to Jesus. That's the takeaway. When you get a good look at who you are, it should lead to regret. You should even have a point of despair in in a way. When you come to terms with who you are, the solution is not to reassure, your, reassure yourself that you're not that bad. That it's not the real you. That's not the solution. The solution is not even 
to find a way to forgive yourself. So understand, that's a way to tell yourself that what you did isn't really that bad. You can forgive it. You can forgive it. The solution is to see that the truth is it really is as bad as you think in that moment. But not to let that lead you to final despair. Instead of a regret that leads to death and despair, it should lead you to look to Christ and to Christ's death for you. To how you can come to an end to yourself and survive. by recognizing that you come to an end to yourself by turning from your sin and looking to Jesus, trusting that you died with him. So when we, when we cower under the pressure that we're experiencing in our culture, it, it can happen. When we can't take the heat and we say, no, no I'm not really with Jesus like that. when we doubt whether we should continue in this route or not. The solution is to look to Jesus. We shouldn't just try to wash our hands clean. Try to deal with our guilt ourselves. Both Lady Macbeth and Judas himself demonstrate that is not going to lead you out of despair. We face the truth by facing Jesus. We rest in his forgiveness. We rest in his strength. We acknowledge we can't follow Jesus in our own strength. So when we fall, we fall at his feet to receive his strength. Jesus didn't die for us because we're we're great people. He died for us because we're sinners. We have no way to save ourselves. So whenever you're confronted with the truth about yourself, confess that it's true. And then look to Jesus. Don't respond with with worldly regret that leads to final death. Respond with godly regret that leads you to see that you died with Christ that you can die to yourself and keep trusting in him. Join me in prayer. Jesus, it is so easy for us to think like Peter. To think that we are stronger than we really are. Even after we have recognized that it is by grace alone that we're saved, even after we rest wholly and completely in what you've done for us, we can still be tempted by self-confidence. And when we get to where that actually leads, 
we make a mess of ourselves because we trust it in ourselves? Help us to see you. As difficult as it may be, help us to look up, like Luke says, to meet your gaze, to see you, just what Peter experienced. And though we have regret in that moment, it's right that we regret our sin, that we regret what we've done. Help us to recognize what you did for us. Because we're sinful. Was to confess the truth about ourselves. Because we know if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Keep us from our own delusions about ourselves. So that we rest in where true strength is found. And we do ask that you would keep us from ourselves, from what we are capable of. That you would keep us because we belong to you. Anyone here doesn't know you Pray that you would send your spirit, that your spirit would be active in that person's life, that your spirit would cause them to pay attention to the good news about you. That they would repent and believe. Amen.